Hello, and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. Britain's economy is still reeling from then-Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's recent mini-budget, a series of announcements which, in short order, tanked the pound, sent guilt soaring, destroyed the country's economic credibility on the markets, and, as we record today, has just brought down PM Liz Truss and may still scuttle the entire government. But while Kwarteng may be gone with trust following hot on his heels, the damage they wreaked on the economy remains. Namely, a £40 billion hole in the public finances, which needs to somehow be filled. But while the libertarian right talk a good game about the need to find efficiencies and savings, they're often remarkably coy about what this is actually going to mean for ordinary people. In short, if we are going to repair the damage to this country's accounts, what is actually left to cut and what would the country look like if it happened? Joining me in the bunker today to answer these questions is Nick Davis of the Institute for Government, whose performance tracker survey provides a detailed overview of the state of public services in this country. Welcome to the bunker, Nick. Thank you for having me. In the introduction to the latest report, you state, quote, public services are in a fragile state, some are in crisis. These are not isolated problems in individual services, but interconnected structural failures. Um, For context, just how bad are things? I mean, for older listeners who remember, say, the late 1980s, are we looking at something comparable in the public world? I think we could be. It depends on the decisions that are made by whoever forms uh, the next government. The services that we look at, which includes uh, hospitals, general practice, adult social care schools, the criminal justice system, in virtually all cases, and they are in a worse state now than they were before the pandemic. And I think probably the more shocking thing is that actually most of those services entered the pandemic having got worse over the preceding 10 years. So we're looking at sort of a lost 15 years for public services already. Uh, And if there were deep cuts to come, then that could quite easily become a lost generation for public services. And just to um, set the field here, can you just explain to listeners what the performance tracker is and how it functions? Yeah, so it's a data-driven analysis of nine key public services. We look at the inputs to those services, such as spending, uh, staffing. Uh, We then look at the outputs. So, for example, how many uh, GP appointments are delivered. Uh, And then we look at kind of measures of performance, uh, be that kind of public uh, satisfaction or various outcome measures. Uh, And then we make an assessment of how sustainable those services are and how they've done over the previous year. And we should also say that at the IFG, you are a politically neutral organisation, aren't you? So this is essentially a sort of stock taking of the the state as a whole rather than a party political issue. Exactly. We're nonpartisan and we produce it in partnership um, with SIPFA, who are also a nonpartisan organisation. So it's an objective, data-driven look uh, at the state of public services. So after Jeremy Hunt's emergency statement, which feels like it happened about nine months ago at this point, um, savings of around £32 per year were made, um, with him rowing back on some of what Kwarteng had announced. But this still left that headline figure that's been bandied around of £40 billion that the government needs to find. Um, In your opinion, is that number broadly accurate? And is it currently pretty stable? Or are market ructions likely to send it cascading further north? 
So it's a bit hard to say. So that figure has come from a report that said the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, had identified a 72 billion hole uh, in public finances by 2026-27. And so the assumption is that having found 32 billion um, in the statement on Monday, that there's 40 billion left. But it does slightly depend uh, on the forecasts that are made by the OBR. So we won't have a a clear idea of what the number is until those forecasts are released. If if we stick with this idea that the 40 billion is, you know, roughly in the right ballpark, in lay terms, is this just a case of the government having to divide that number up equally and find savings across all departments? Or does it become more complicated than that? Is it more of a horse trading exercise? I, there's always a horse trading exercise. I mean, normally there's there's a bit more time to do the horse trading uh, than there is now. But yes, there's always kind of negotiations. Uh, you know, it's a big number, though, um, 40 billion. So, I mean, to put that in context, if that was cut from day-to-day departmental budgets, that would require them to fall by nearly 8% in real terms over the next um, four years. And that would be cuts on a par with those made from 2010 to 2015. So the kind of the the hardest austerity um, that we've had uh, in recent times. Uh, and even if they were only looking for around 20 billion of cuts, that would still require tighter budgets than w- that were delivered from 2015 to 2019. So I, I think it is, it's going to be a pretty tall order uh, if they do that from day-to-day departmental budgets. I think a, a likely target will be capital investment. So um, Boris Johnson had committed to um, increasing uh, public sector net investment. You could cut around £14 billion from that. If you assume that no cuts are made to defence, then that would imply cuts of 13% to capital spending in other areas, uh, which is obviously quite a lot, though that would still imply relatively high capital spending compared to recent history. Uh, so there is there is there is some money there, and then the other place which I'm sure we can talk about that, that they might look uh, is in the kind of the the benefit system. Well, the the Financial Times analysis yesterday was suggesting they thought half the money could be made back through various tax rises, both on individuals and companies. Um, what form do you think they would be likely to take, and what would the knock on effect be? The difficult thing here is 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 the parliamentary management that there's very little that the Conservative Party can agree on, apart from that they don't want an election. Uh, and if the government wants to raise taxes, then it would have to put those in a finance bill that it would have to pass through Parliament. Uh, and I think the big question is whether they could do that. I mean, obviously, the big sources of tax revenue are uh, income tax, uh, which we've talked about and at which Jeremy Hunt has um, already rode back on the commitment to cut it by 1p. You know, you could raise that. Uh, VAT of, uh, raises uh, a lot of money. They've already rode back on national insurance, but you could they could row back again uh, and um, they could raise national insurance. Uh, corporation tax, they've already U-turned and said they're rising there. So, I mean, those are the kind of the big ones that you would look at and could all raise billions and billions of pounds. But clearly, that's going to be a a tough political sell for whoever's in charge. 
I mean, your report does paint a particularly grim picture of the state of public services across the board, really. But if you can order these things, which do you think are the most and least able to bear any further cuts? I mean, you mentioned there that the benefit system would potentially be the sort of main area they looked at. So look, that is definitely one area that they could look at. And I think the advantage, if you can, if you'd like to think about it uh, that way, is that in many cases, so for universal credit, for example, the government doesn't need parliamentary approval not to uprate it. Okay. Now, they would need parliamentary approval just to uprate it uh, in line with earnings rather than inflation. So that would be increasing it by, say, five and a half percent rather than 10 percent. But actually, the kind of the mechanisms for parliament to reject that are pretty weak. Uh, So it would largely come down to MPs being able to try and put pressure on the government in other ways to stop that. But in theory, that has a slightly easier route through Parliament. Obviously, the big problem with that is the impact that it's going to have on people's lives. You know, the whole country is dealing with a cost of living crisis uh, at the moment, and that is particularly acute for the poorest members of society. And if you are talking about, you know, reducing the income by 5% uh, of those households, that's clearly going to have a, a huge impact on the quality of people's lives. And each percentage point which benefits are cut by saves the government roughly £3 billion a year. Um, 1% doesn't sound like much to cut to a service, but can we project what that would mean in real terms for, say, the NHS? So uh, cutting cutting the NHS by one um, percent, you have to ask how do how do you find those savings? So the biggest part of most public service budgets are staff. Uh, you know, it's more than fifty percent in most cases, and up to kind of sixty seventy percent uh, in some. And you know, as you'll see, and as your listeners will have heard, there's a big threat of strike action already. The Royal College of Nursing is looking to ballot its members for the first time. Uh, three different education unions, including the Union for Head Teachers, uh, are looking to ballot. And that's on the existing pay offers. So you can only imagine what the impact would be if the government tried to hold down pay even more. Uh, and it just doesn't seem politically viable. I, I think you'd be looking at, you know, winter of discontent mark two if we're not already looking at that if they tried to hold down um, wages even further. I I think the other big area that the government um, would look to cut from public service budgets is is again on capital and you can get away with doing that in in the short term without a kind of noticeable catastrophic impact on service performance but in the long term it hugely damages the productivity Uh, of those services. You know, it's much harder if you are a nurse or a doctor to treat patients uh, efficiently. That's clearly going to make it much harder to deliver those services. And and actually, the big shortage that we have in most services is the workforce. You know, you can't just magic highly trained doctors or nurses out of nowhere. So if you are reducing the productivity of those people, it's going to have a big negative impact on the quality of those services. The 
the two areas which seem most obviously at breaking point and partly because of that lack of capital expenditure investment that you just outlined are probably social care and the prison system. Um, realistically, from the work you did on the report, can anything more be taken from those two areas before we start to see entire systems just breaking down? I think it would be very difficult. So let's take prisons um, to start with. Uh, so there were big cuts to prison spending between 2010 uh, and 2014, uh, and a big uh, cuts in staff. So one of the ways they made those savings were by offering kind of voluntary redundancy. So we lost thousands of prison officers, and we lost a lot of our most experienced prison officers. And what happened after that was the violence exploded in prison. There was also a big increase uh, in the in the amount of self-harming. Uh, and so the government ended up having to put quite a lot more money back into prisons. Uh, and we now nearly have as many prison officers uh, now as we did in 2010. However, they are far less experienced um, than the ones we had then. And even in prisons at the moment, there aren't enough staff for prisons to safely reopen to how they were pre-pandemic. So, you know, in a lot of prisons, they are prisoners are spending 22 hours or more in their cells. And that means they have far less access to kind of education, training. So it would be difficult to take further money out of that, not least because it's anticipated that there's going to be a big rise in the number of prisoners. So one of Boris Johnson's flagship policies was to increase the number of police officers by 20,000. And all things being equal, more police officers will mean more people being charged will mean more people going to prisons. So the Ministry of Justice uh, own projections think that the number of prisoners is going to go up from around 83,000 now to well over 95,000 in a few years time. On adult social care, I mean, it it's kind of been the Cinderella service of, of, of health and care for, for some time. So again, you know, adult social care saw some fairly steep cuts in the first part of the 2010s. The situation got really bad uh, and more money had to be put in. But even now, a lot of the providers of adult social care, so in, in many, in most cases, adult social care is provided by private companies uh, and charities. But the margins on those businesses are incredibly thin. And, you know, we've seen a lot of cases where those suppliers are handing back contracts because it's just not affordable. And that is not affordable, even with the pretty pitiful wages that adult social care can offer at the moment. So in, in many cases, the wages are actually lower than in retail jobs. But actually, adult social care is a really, really hard job. And, you know, understandably, a lot of people think that they'd rather, you know, stack shelves than clean bedpans. And there were a loss of 50,000 people from the adult social care workforce uh, last year. So I don't know where you take money out of there. And the big problem is that the problems in adult social care have a knock-on impact on other parts of the health and care system. Uh, so most obviously, one of the reasons that waiting times are so high in hospitals is because hospitals are unable to discharge a lot of patients who are ready to be discharged because they're aren't care places for them to be discharged into, or indeed social workers to assess where they can be discharged to. So, you know, the government tried in the 2010s to cut down on adult social care spending, but it's had a big knock-on impact on the kind of high-profile and very expensive services like hospitals. 
And in your report summary, you say that, quote, there is no meaningful fat to cut from public service budgets. If the government wishes to make cuts in the medium term fiscal plan, it must accept that these are almost certain to have a further negative impact on public services performance. Um, If you're looking into the crystal ball there, what do you think we're going to notice most immediately and most obviously when these cuts start coming through? How, How do you think it's going to manifest? So I think the obvious one that a lot of people have already started to notice is in some places it's virtually impossible to get a GP appointment. Hmm. You can call at 8am when the surgery opens uh, and you can't get through. And by the time you do get through at 8.30, there are already no appointments left. Uh, And we don't actually know how, because the government doesn't collect data on it, how many people aren't able to get GP appointments uh, at the moment. But similarly, if you uh, are unlucky enough to have uh, an accident uh, and you need to go to A&E, you know, there's an inferior target uh, that you should be seen within four hours, but that target hasn't been met for years and years. And a lot of people are waiting 12 hours or more uh, at the moment. Uh, Similarly, you know, if you've Uh, had an accident and couldn't make your own way uh, to hospital, uh, you might need an ambulance. Well, you know, it might take you, you know, 10, 15 minutes to even get through to the operator. And then even for kind of category two incidents, which includes things like stroke and heart attack, which, you know, can be deadly. And even if not, can have a, you know, a long-term impact for the rest of your life. uh, The, you know, the average wait time is then an hour So I think now is basically a very, very bad time uh, to be unwell. I I suppose the other place that you might uh, see it, just because a lot of people use it, is is in schools. So, for example, my son goes to the the local primary school. It's a a relatively uh, well-off area. But even then, in many ways, it only runs because there's an incredibly active PTA that raises tens of thousands of pounds every year to support the school and it's even buying basic things like pens and pencils but that's obviously only possible because there are lots of people in my area who've got the time and then people who've got you know spare money to do buy things from bake sales etc and that is not the case in all parts of the country so you know the the quality of the kind of the school environment that students in more disadvantaged parts of the country, I think you're really going to see that suffering as well. And finally, just to try and end on a vaguely positive note. um, (laughs) Good luck. If uh, new Prime Minister Nick Davis were to want to attend (laughs) Downing Street and, you know, you sit down the dispatch box and say, look, all these spending cuts are off the table, none of them are going to happen. What else is in the toolkit which the government might be able to use that isn't just cutting spending? So look... We don't think that there is any fat to cut, but that is not the same as saying that there are no efficiencies. The problem is that realising those probably requires some short-term investment. So if you want to get the most out of your highly trained and highly paid hospital consultants, then they need to be working on the best equipment. They need to be supported by uh, an IT system that works rather than having to scribble notes on pen and paper. It might mean kind of redesigning the service in some way, and but that requires kind of headspace, it requires management capacity, uh, and those are things that a lot of public services just don't have at the moment. So I do think with time you could set out a plan and a roadmap for getting the same for less 
money, but you're not going to do that in the 17 days between Jeremy Hunt being appointed Chancellor and delivering his fiscal plan. Nick Davis, thank you for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you. Listeners, remember to help keep up with these chaotic times. The Bunker is now available seven days a week with our companion panel show, Oh God, What Now?, going out Tuesdays and Fridays. To support the shows directly, find us on Patreon, where it's at least £3 a month, gets you the shows early without ads, along with an inside track on live events and merchandise. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Justin Quirk. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Jelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archibald, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.